that's right, that's right. That's, that's the reformed way of proceeding. It's like the, uh, the uh, I thought they were gone. The drums are on automatic. Uh, it was like the uh, the first translation of the of the Latin Mass into English in this century, where the priest at the end was supposed to say, "Go now, the Mass is ended," and the people were to respond, "Thanks be to God." And uh, it was not entirely clear for what the people were thankful. Never mind, you had to be there. Um, uh, when are we? When are we? What time are we breaking? No, I don't want that. That that's Pentecostal. That <laughs> okay. Eleven-ish. You want to go that long? All right. Yeah, right. You 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 raise, when you raise your hand, I'll stop. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. Um, if I, uh, as a matter of personal privilege, could just briefly report on what's happening in the Christian Reformed Church, because. Uh, uh, I would appreciate your prayers as you think about it in the days to come. Um, most of you know that we, uh, for a number of years, have been having uh, significant trouble and tension in the Christian Reformed Church. And in the last uh, 10 years, we've seen about 40,000 members of the Christian Reformed Church leave the Christian Reformed Church. Um, that's not always crystal clear in the figures that are reported because there have been people who've come into the Christian Reformed Church. But the actual loss is 40,000. Uh, about 12 to 15,000 of those have now organized themselves into a new denomination called the United Reformed Churches. And some of the conservatives uh, remaining in the Christian Reformed Church in the last uh, two years have met annually in South Holland, Illinois, to try to uh, um, think through what uh, those in the Christian Reformed Church can still do to try to make a difference and make a change. At the last meeting at South Holland, it was decided that um, uh, an overture would be sent to the Synod requesting that the Synod create four uh, theological classes that would be conservative in nature. And the reason the number four was chosen was because in the Christian Reform system, many important decisions are made not by classes alone, but by classes with the concurrence of three synodical deputies from neighboring classes. So you need neighboring sympathetic classes to ordain ministers, for example. The classes can't do that on its own. And for many conservatives, this was sort of the last-ditch effort to see if there was any way to remain within the Christian Reformed Church and uh, uh, both bear a conservative testimony but also to protect our conservative life in the Christian Reformed Church. I learned this morning that the Synod has rejected that overture. Uh, there will be no conservative theological classes. Um, I'm not sure, in fact, it was a very good idea, uh, but in any case, uh, what this means is that for a number of conservatives now in the Christian Reformed Church, um, um, the, the only choices left, really, are to, uh, to go along with, with what's happening and try to save whatever could be saved on the local level in the local church, uh, although Synod has also adopted new guidelines which will give the classes much more control of the property of local congregations than had been the case before. Um, and the only other option, of course, is to leave the Christian Reformed Church. So uh, this will be a very difficult time for a number of congregations. Um, and even in conservative 
in many conservative congregations, there is no uh, real consensus as what ought to be done. So this is going to be a very difficult time for ministers, for congregations, for individuals, and I know uh, all of us in the Christian Reformed Church would appreciate your prayers for us that we might have wisdom and uh, might uh, know how best um, to serve the Lord. That will be true in, our, in my own congregation in Escondido uh, as well. Uh, I would appreciate that. Would one of the brothers um, um, pray for us? Um, Roger, would you pray for us? Thank you very much.
<coughs> it was not really in relation to this announcement that I uh, had chosen my starting point for uh, uh, this morning's uh, reflection, um, but I thought in terms of the, um, the things we have been talking about this week, that we might remember the words of the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, uh, warning him about uh, people who in the last days would have the form of godliness but deny its power. And um, uh, we've been talking this week um, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily about what we might call the form of godliness. We've been talking a lot about the externals of worship, and uh, they have been on my mind in recent years because uh, so many externals of worship have been under attack or have been, uh, maybe that's an excessively strong way to put it, but have been, uh, have been changed, have been challenged. There's been a great deal of discussion. And so um, I have uh, concentrated uh, this week on issues related to what we might call the form of godliness. And I think uh, the words of the Apostle Paul are often... Um, not fully appreciated here. I think one of the implications of what he says here is that there is a form of godliness. Uh, there are some who uh, read this passage as almost as if Paul is saying, uh, uh, don't worry about forms at all. What's, what's important is the heart. What's important is the power of godliness. And of course, uh, that's the primary point he wants to make, that the, the power of godliness must be present in our living, in our hearts, in our experience. But I think implicit in what he's saying is that there is also a form of godliness and, and that the real glory of Christianity is where the form of godliness is linked to the power of godliness, where uh, the heart uh, follows the word, uh, where our, uh, our, our committed service is faithful to what the Lord has revealed. And um, having talked then about uh, uh, what I would be willing to call the form of godliness pretty much this week. I'd like uh, in these uh, concluding minutes uh, with you to talk a little bit about the power of godliness because if we have the form just right and our heart isn't in it, we won't have much. And uh, John Calvin, in thinking about worship, says, it is not sufficient to utter the praises of God with our tongues if they do not proceed from the heart. Uh, we may, we may uh, have the perfect song to sing to, to God, but if it's only our mouths that are engaged and our heart isn't engaged, then we haven't praised the Lord. And um, so I'd like you to reflect with me just a little uh, this morning on the importance of heart worship, of our hearts being engaged uh, with God. And uh, this is not uh, an easy business, uh, engaging the heart for God, but it's an extremely serious matter. And um, uh, we can see that seriousness by looking uh, many parts of Scripture, of course, but I'd like you to, to look just very briefly at Psalm 95 as uh, one way in which the seriousness of the call to worship comes to us. Uh, Psalm 95 is... Uh, uh, a section of Scripture, as most ministers probably know, from which we derive a lot of calls to worship. Uh, Psalms 92 through 98 particularly are, are abounding in, uh, in verses that are, 
are uh, very useful as calls to worship, and uh, Psalm 95 may be the most used uh, in many places as a call to worship. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to Him. As we sit up here on the mountain peak, uh, uh, that comes home with a new uh, pointedness perhaps. The sea is His, for He made it and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship, uh, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture, the flock of His hand. Uh, twice in verses 1 and in 6, the, the appeal, come, uh, come into the presence of the Lord. Come with joy in your heart. Come with thanksgiving. Come contemplating all that the Lord has done. Come meet with your God who cares for you. Come to the Lord uh, who is uh, the, uh, the maker and the shepherd of his people. Uh, this is a wonderful, joyful call to worship, and it's, uh, it's so appropriate, it's uh, so logical that the church through the centuries would have turned to this passage uh, as its call uh, to worship. And yet it's interesting that uh, the latter verses of this psalm are seldom used as a call to worship. Uh, we usually stop dead at verse 7. Um, and yet... And, and I suppose the reason we stop dead is the psalm seems to turn on us uh, right at that point. And uh, from its joyful call to worship, uh, turn rather solemn. And I suppose one of the things that I've found so intriguing about the psalms as I've studied them is this arresting quality, how uh, they, they, they come at you uh, from the blind side, uh, how they... Uh, surprise you and uh, leave you sometimes scratching your head and uh, thinking, now why did the psalmist, having provided this very nice call to worship, have to go and ruin it with all of this glum stuff? Now, again, we don't really believe that, but uh, uh, we, we have this sort of surprised reaction. And, and if you're going to be glum, why not, um, why not at least be glum in the middle of the psalm and, and end on a happy note? That would be more American. Um, th this psalm ends rather discouragingly. Verse 11, So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And, uh, no, that's it. Uh, amen. Sing the amen at that point. Uh, today, if you hear his voice, if you hear the voice calling you to worship, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I had done. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Israel at Massa and Meribah did not so much refuse the forms of godliness but they tried the Lord by, by grumbling in their hearts, by doubting His presence, by thinking that forms were enough. And the problem was they hardened their hearts against the Lord. Their hearts were not engaged. And what this psalm reminds us is, you see, the seriousness of the call to worship. 
it is an awesome thing to come into the presence of the living God. Uh, one cannot come lightly. Uh, one cannot come with the assumption that uh, the Lord, um, like a kindly grandfather, is just delighted to see us on whatever terms. Uh, the Lord is the mighty God. The Lord has created us, and the Lord in His great mercy has redeemed us, and the Lord expects then that our hearts should not be hardened in relation to Him, but it should be softened with gratitude and joy and thanksgiving and delight in Him. Uh, yes, there is a, a genuineness of praise and of glorying in the Lord that is legitimate and appropriate but it must reflect hearts that are really engaged in the Lord, that are really turned to the Lord. And uh, Calvin wrote about the need to then be prepared for worship. He said, We must be well prepared for the worship of God. Too much diligence and care cannot be taken to cleanse ourselves wholly from all sorts of pollutions. For as long as any relics of superstition continue among us, they will ever entangle us. Now, Calvin is talking particularly about spiritual and moral preparation for worship. Uh, the desire to cleanse ourselves from the sins that cling to us, a desire uh, to, to know the will of the Lord and to, to follow it joyfully. Uh, and uh, that's a necessary preparation. Uh, we need to prepare ourselves to come with hearts uh, that are able uh, to meet with God. If, if worship is meeting with God, we need hearts prepared to do that. And and I know uh, uh, from the experience of my family, that's not always easy. It seems like we always run late on Sunday. Now, uh, now Dutchmen are good at that. Dutchmen are good at being early. Some Dutchmen. Uh, we're always running late, so we're always rushing, and then Dad gets mad because nobody else is ready, even though he's not ready. And uh, um, uh, we can often arrive at church uh, not uh, prepared and uh, uh, rush in at the last minute and um, arriving, in our case, in three different cars and wondering uh, why we, for a five-minute drive we had to take three different cars. Uh, but, but all of those distractions so easily beset us and uh, make it difficult for the heart to be ready to hear the call to worship. Uh, and the seriousness of this psalm needs, uh, needs to strike us. Don't harden your heart. And I guess uh, that led me also to think a little bit about uh, some of the remarks I made yesterday although we should be concerned about the forms of our worship and, and we should be uh, eager to be as biblical as we can, uh, part of the form and power of godliness is also patience and love when we don't get things just our way. Uh, now, uh, in some of the questions I'll be uh, answering uh, after the break, um, I will be telling you uh, what I would do if I could have it just my way. And, of course, I ought to have it just my way. Um, but uh, many of the things I'd like to have just my way, I don't have just my way uh, in, uh, in um, Escondido. Uh, the Escondido worship service is a quite good worship service, but there are any number of things I'd do differently if I were king of the world or pope. <laughs> but I'm not pope. Um, and... Uh, and so I have to, uh, as a worshiper, uh, say, uh, in general terms, my worship service is a good worship service. And that means I must not harden my heart by allowing the devil to make me nothing but a critic in the worship service. 
uh, to not sit there and simply be making a mental list of all the things that should have been done better. That is a form of hardening the heart. And I have to come um, with an eagerness uh, to enter in to the worship as I am called to it by the pastor and elders of the church. There has to be a submissiveness in my, in my heart. That, too, is part of the form and power of godliness, and I have to keep that in mind. Now, if you, if you press me, well, what exactly is the dividing point between the, the tolerable errors, according to my mind, and the intolerable errors? Well, I, I don't think there's any uh, a simple, exact, certain way to draw that line. We, we, we have to, to live with that question, and we have to live with it in the community of God's people. We have to talk to our pastors and elders. Uh, we have to study the Word of God. Uh, but we have to remember that the call to love, the call to patience, the call to submission is also a part of the form and power of godliness as well as the call to faithfulness to God's Word. And those things have to be properly balanced and are balanced only in the reality of our experience and living before the Lord. So there has to be a preparation of our heart that we will seek the Lord through the forms that a godly church of which we are members, uh, does seek the Lord. And then I think we can enter into the blessedness of worship, a blessedness which I think is uh, wonderfully captured for us in any number of the psalms. Uh, We sang uh, uh, one of them today that that captures that, uh, Psalm uh, 42, that, that hunger for the Lord, that longing for the Lord. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Uh, that, that eager anticipation of meeting with God. Uh, now again, uh, we might pause and say, what's the matter with that psalmist? Didn't he know that God is everywhere? Didn't he have his morning devotions? Um, he's goofy or... or or uh, these sediments are sub-Christian. These are, these are Old Testament sediments. Uh, when, when they did focus on an earthly temple and felt far from God if they weren't on the earthly, uh, in, the, in the earthly temple. But uh, uh, these, aren't, uh, these aren't Christian sediments. Uh, we Christians know even better than the Jews that God is everywhere. And uh, if I can't uh, uh, meet with God's people in Sunday worship for some reason, I can uh, have my private devotions and that's just as good and I'm just as close to God and these longings can be satisfied. Well, there's a little bit of truth to that. It is certainly true that God is everywhere, that I can pray to God, that I can read His Word, that I can have fellowship with Him. But these psalms do not become irrelevant for us because of that. These psalms remain true because uh, we are, as the gathered people of God, the temple of God, and we are, as the gathered people of God, as I tried to argue uh, earlier in the week, uh, entering together into the heavenly temple. And we profoundly miss something of our corporate fellowship with God if we are not with God's people and in the official worship of His people. These longings are appropriate Uh, There ought to be a longing in our heart for the blessedness of the fellowship of God's people with one another and particularly the fellowship of God's people corporately meeting with God. And uh, one of my favorite psalms that that, uh, 
uh, speaks of that longing and that glorious Psalm 84. And I thought we might just spend a little bit of time looking at Psalm 84 uh, as it speaks to us of that, that proper heart longing for God. Psalm 84, a, a psalm very much in the spirit, or the general spirit at least, of Psalm 42, a very familiar psalm, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. Um, the commentators suggest that, that that loveliness is not an uh, sort of abstract reflection on the beauty of the temple, but it's a reflection on the psalmist's love for the temple. How beloved is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. How much I love thinking about where it is that you dwell with particular focus and concentration for me. How I love that place where I meet with you. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Here's a soul prepared for worship. Here's a soul that has contemplated the blessedness, the joy, the beauty, the loveliness of meeting with God and so is able to speak of a yearning, a yearning so intense it is all but uh, uh, on the point of fainting to meet with God. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That should be the attitude that uh, we seek in worship. Uh, it's probably not an attitude we'll have with precisely the same intensity, uh, Sabbath by Sabbath, but that, that should be the, the, the ideal that is set before us. There ought to be a longing in our hearts uh, for God, and that is so contrasted with the, the attitude that uh, Amos talked about as he criticized the people of Israel for the attitude they too often took. He says in Amos 8, verse 4 and following, Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath be ended that we may market wheat, skimping the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. Uh, that's the way some people come to church. Uh, when will it be over? I, I've, I've preached in churches where I was told going in, um, the service starts at 11 and it ends at 12. Our people will not stay one minute past 12. Uh, I don't care when you start to preach, you have to finish at five minutes to 12 so we can sing a hymn and have a benediction and be out of here by 12. Um, what did they come for? What did they come for? To fulfill some sort of obligation? To sit and watch the clock to see uh, how long it takes for the minute hand to go around 60 times? Did they come for God? Now, that, of course, is not a license for the minister to go on and on and on and on and never finish. It's not a license for the minister to be undisciplined in his preparation and in his preaching. But you see, it, it is a challenge to basic attitudes. What have we come for? Have, have we come to meet with God? 
You know, we, we ought to rewrite maybe some of those Kennedy evangelism questions. When you die and go to heaven and God is interviewing you, will you keep glancing at your watch to see how soon it'll be over? <laughs> you see, if, if you're meeting with God, it has implications for, uh, for, for your basic attitudes. And, uh, and what has to inform the preparation of our heart is what a privilege it is to meet with God. What a blessedness it is to meet with God. And, and so our hearts, far from hardening against God, ought to, ought to soften with every thought of, of the privilege of meeting with God. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. He's the Almighty God, the psalmist says. He's the living God. Um, and, and, and there must be in the mind of the psalmist a, a sense both of outrage and of, and of pity for the people who go to worship gods that are not alive. Psalmist must have known the nations go to temples filled with idols to worship wood and stone, things that are not alive. But our God is alive. He does meet with us uh, as we meet with Him. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Um... I don't think that verse is meant to celebrate the fact that there were lots of bird nests near the altar in the temple. I think what it celebrates is that even the small and weak birds find a home, and I, as a small and weak person, have found a home too, namely a place near your altar. That there's a place for the weak, there's a place for the needy, there's a place for those who are not strong and powerful, and that place is near the Almighty God, the King, who welcomes us to stand at His very altar, to fellowship there at the place where atonement is made, where the sacrifice is known. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. That privilege, that anticipation, that foretaste of heaven, that's what uh, Sunday worship ought to be, a foretaste of heaven, an anticipation of that ultimate meeting with God where sin will no longer be any barrier, where our, our, our bodily weakness will not be any barrier, but we will uh, forever praise the Lord uh, perfectly. And, and so these, these opening verses, uh, this psalm breaks naturally into three parts, the, the selahs there in the, in the column margin, whatever they mean, at least uh, suggest that uh, uh, the ancients thought that these broke down into two parts. And this first part then seems to be this, this preparation of the heart and a longing and an anticipation uh, for God, the blessedness of the house of God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. And then uh, uh, the psalmist seems to go from blessing to blessing, from verse 1, if you will, to verse 2, or stanza 1 to stanza 2. Uh, and... Uh, the, the, the theme of the second stanza is um, getting to that house, the journey to the house. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage as they p pass through the valley of Baca. They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Uh, here is a recognition that uh, it, takes, it takes strength 
to worship God, to get to God's house, to meet with God. And the journey may be a long one. And, of course, the psalmist is probably thinking quite literally of the obligation on Israel to travel uh, four times a year to the temple. And that for some it was a long and difficult journey. It was a a difficult journey especially for the weak. It was a difficult uh, journey when there was no water and they traveled through dry lands. And the promise here is that the Lord will provide the strength for his people that they need to come to him, to meet with him. They will go from strength to strength until each appears before God in Zion. What a promise that uh, that longing for worship will be fulfilled. That longing to meet with God will be realized, that God himself will give the strength that we need Uh, to meet with him. There's a blessedness even in the journey. And the promise that supports the journey that we will go from strength to strength and the assurance that we can pray to the Lord who will listen to us and grant us what we need. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. And then we come to the third stanza, And once again, we we have a kind of um, element in the psalm that doesn't, at first glance, seem to fit. Verse 9, look upon your shield, O God, look with favor on your anointed one. Uh, Up until this point, the the psalmist has been uh, rather personal in his focus upon God, and the rest of the psalm is rather personal in its focus upon God. And here this verse now of, of prayer for the anointed one, prayer for the Messiah, prayer for the people's king. As the second stanza ends with a prayer, hear my prayer, so the third stanza begins with a prayer, look upon your shield, O God. What's the psalmist saying there? He's saying, I as the one who would meet with you, I as the one who desires to worship you and be in your presence, know that I need help, I need protection, I need someone to lead me, someone to carry me, someone to help me in the journey and in the worship. Look upon your shield, O Lord. That is, look upon my protector, O Lord. Look upon favor on the one you have appointed to be my shield. And in the psalmist's uh, mind, this was almost certainly the the king of Israel, God's servant. But uh, again, uh, shows how the psalms are more for us than for them. We know who the real Messiah is, the real anointed one is. Uh, Look upon Jesus, O Lord, as as I long to worship you, as I long to meet with you, as I long to be in your presence, uh, I need a Messiah to be my shield. I need a Savior to lead me into your presence. I know that I have no dwelling place except through the sacrifice of your altar uh, where Messiah himself was sacrificed so that I come into your presence only with the blood of Jesus Christ, only in the power of his love and work And because then I can focus on the very blessedness of God and of His appointment, of His provision for me, then I can declare, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. I would rather be a menial servant of the true and living God than to possess all the wealth of the wicked. It's not always an easy thing to say. 
Couldn't we have just a little of the wealth of the wicked? I think what the psalmist is really saying here is I'd rather be a servant of God than a son of the wicked. I'd rather only be a servant at the door of the Lord than to be the inheritor of all the house of the wicked. And again, as we New Covenant people sing that, we say, isn't it wonderful? We don't really have to make that choice. It's not a choice between being a servant of God and a son of the wicked. It's a choice between being a son of God or a son of the evil one. God doesn't just call us to be servants and doorkeepers in his house. He invites us right into the temple where our dwelling place will be with him. Uh, We are not left on the fringe. And even though it's true we'd rather be on the fringe with God than at the heart of things with the evil one, uh, the, the wonderful provision of God is we're not left on the fringe. We're not left on the outside. We're not left just opening the door for others and occasionally getting a glimpse of the glory. We're invited right into the heart and center of things with God himself uh, so that we experience that blessedness, that fulfillment, that glory. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. There is the the fulfillment, you see, of all that the temple points to. The, The longing for the house of God is ultimately a longing for God himself. And the house, the the worship that we experience as Christians, we long for because it is there with a a wonderful intensity and concentration. We do meet with our God. We do know Him more fully. The reason that we should be longing to hear His Word is because we know how ignorant we are and how prone to wander we are and how we need that word always to bring us back to a true understanding of God and of ourselves and of our relationship how we need that word to water our souls to straighten out our thinking to redirect us in the walk of the blameless blessed is the man who trusts in you that's where our worship culminates Uh, John Calvin said, uh, the worship of God consists in these two things, faith and repentance. The worship of God consists in these two things, faith and repentance. And what he means by that is that our response to God is summarized in in that way. uh, I used to teach a preaching course at the seminary, and uh, uh, that that was uh, one of... uh, um, the concerns I had to students. What, what, what are you preaching for? What, what are you expecting of the people of God as you preach? And I said, it seems to me what you ought to be preaching for is faith and repentance. And when you preach for faith and repentance, then you're preaching to everybody who's there, whether they're believers or not. Because what do unbelievers need? They need faith and repentance. And what do believers need? They need faith and repentance. Uh, you know, don't, don't get sort of suckered into that, uh, that notion that uh, repentance is something that's only at the beginning of Christian life and, and then you go on to something else or that faith is something you need only at the beginning of Christian life and then you go on to something else. No, what every Christian needs every day is faith and repentance. We need to repent every day. We need to, to grow in trusting God every day. That's, that's what the Word calls us to. 
repentance is, is especially that turning away from the old life and turning to the new life, following the ways of God. And, and faith is preeminently resting and trusting and relying upon the finished work of Christ for us in every need. And, and you see how wonderfully this psalm then uh, focuses for us what, what needs to be the heart of worship. And um, does remind us, of course, that it's, it's not easy. Uh, and, and the very difficulty of worship is, is why our human tendency is to find ways of making it easy. It, it's not easy for us to remember that when we gather for worship, we are meeting in the presence of God. And, and because that isn't easy, people began to uh, decorate churches to remind them that they were in the presence of God. And so we go into an Eastern Orthodox church and we look up and there is a great Pantocrator, Christ as ruler and judge of all things, visibly displayed in mammoth proportions, often looking like a great Moses, glowering down over the congregation. And you look forward and there at the front of the church is the iconostasis with icons uh, of the Virgin Mary and, and of Jesus and of various saints testifying to the grace of God. And, and you see, they, they say, see, that helps us know that God is present. And, and people are tempted, you see, to find those kinds of support. And, and we can be sympathetic to a, a point, an understanding of, of that impulse, but we have to say, that is not how God has appointed that we should know He is present. God has appointed that we should know He's present through His Word. And he asks us to take that difficult step of finding him in his word, of finding him by faith and not by sight. Although in our weakness he does give us something to look at in the bread and the wine of the sacrament. But we have to embrace, you see, the wonderful simplicity and maturity, as Calvin liked to put it, of the new covenant worship. We don't need all the props of the old covenant. We don't need a temple, a visual temple, because Jesus has come. And Jesus has given us the fullness of his word. And any visual help that Jesus hasn't given us only leads us away from Jesus and not to him. And that's why so much of the structure of Calvin's theology or, or Calvin's whole outlook on the Christian life was that Reformed theology and Reformed worship are not two separable items. So that one can say, well, I'll have, uh, I'll have some, uh, two scoops of Reformed theology, but I don't want it in the cone of Reformed worship. Let's, let's, have, uh, let's have Reformed theology, but let's have Pentecostal worship. Or let's have Reformed theology and Anglican worship. And, beloved, it doesn't work. It's an unstable combination. Over time, it collapses. Uh, the strongest form of Christianity, I believe, not as a kind of act of Calvinist triumphalism, but because I really think it's what the Scripture says. The, form, the strongest, most stable form of Christianity is where Reformed theology and Reformed worship are wedded together. 
and the scripture lives among us uh, with the fullness of its power and its beauty and its might. And so I hope uh, these lectures have been of some help to you as you've thought about some of the forms of worship and some of the challenges we face. But let's never forget that the heart must be engaged, that we come to meet with our God in Jesus Christ, and that meeting with him in the, in the joyful company of his people is the great blessing, the great blessing that is ours in our Savior and truly a foretaste of heaven. Um, let's sing together number 84. I'm not sure they were quite the next to last words, but he said, uh, isn't the Reformed faith grand? Um, I, 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 need, uh, I have several questions here, and they're good ones, and, um, but I need to uh, move rather rapidly through them, so you'll uh, have to forgive me if... Uh, a number of them could be uh, whole lectures by themselves, but um, we won't do that. Uh, what advice can you give parents of young children to better be able to focus on meeting with God in worship while training them to proper worship? How can we not let our children... There is no way our children will not be a distraction uh, to us. Um, just live with it. Um, <laughs> This too shall pass, um, like life. Um, I, I, think, uh, I think ministers should think about children in worship, um, uh, and, and there are two things I think uh, ministers should think about. One is uh, that, our, that our pastor does it especially effectively, is that at several points in the course of a sermon, he'll say, now children, and he'll um, summarize some point he's making specifically for the children, which helps the grown-ups get what he's saying. <laughs> Um, but addressing them directly, I think, uh, really uh, perks up their attention. Um, uh, secondly, uh, ministers can help by, in my judgment, having certain repetitive things in the liturgy. I was impressed how young my children could memorize the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed and the Ten Commandments, and that by repeating those things in the service, they felt they could participate even before they could read. And sometimes we underestimate the, the value of that. Uh, from the parent's side, uh, don't be too nice. Uh, I'm now getting old and grumpy, and I'm appalled at young parents who endlessly talk to their chil little chil tiny little children about how they ought to behave. Hit them upside the head. <laughs> See, all the old folks are cheering. Uh, you don't have to hit them upside the head, but... Uh, 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 <laughs> uh, but uh, don't talk endlessly to them. Uh, make, make, uh, impress upon them that uh, this is a serious business and uh, that good behavior is expected. And then uh, uh, use the great Dutch remedy, peppermints. Um, <laughs> I was asked to speak on peppermint theology, and I've been able uh, at last to work it in. So... Uh, a little combination of kindness and strictness. And, uh, and, and as parents, I think one of the things that most struck me, uh, in our church, we, we brought the children into church at age three, um, uh, was how at age three, how much they got out of the service. I think we underestimate and become discouraged thinking they're not getting anything. 
And in fact, even when they're squirming, um, I, I can remember driving home in the car in, in being very upset and saying, now what did the minister have to say? And being amazed how much they could tell me about what the minister had. So don't lose heart. Uh, even if you haven't heard anything, maybe they can summarize the sermon for you. Um, <laughs> In the four elements mentioned in Acts 2.42, where is their place for taking an offering in the service? Obviously a question posed by a minister. Um, I think one could argue that uh, uh, an offering could be part of the fellowship, uh, of the sharing in common, of providing for, uh, in, in a common way for the needs. I'm not suggesting that Acts 2.42 is an exhaustive list of everything we do in worship. And uh, Paul talks in 1 Corinthians about laying aside offerings on the first day of the week. Uh, it is interesting, however, that in some churches the offering isn't part of the service. There's an offering box in the back, and uh, people put their offering in as they leave church. That was fairly common in Europe uh, in many places. Now, here was the question that I'd carefully avoided and thought I would escape. Um, is there a place for choirs or solos in worship? Um, I spoke to this question once in an adult Sunday school class, and the choir in our church is still not speaking to me. Um, uh, very briefly, um, no. Um, uh, it, it's interesting if you look at the history of choirs. The church has had choirs for a very long time, but until the 19th century, I think I could make the case, until the 19th century, uh, or only a little bit before that, the function of choirs in the history of the church was to sing liturgical elements of the service. The notion of special music is a relatively new notion. And uh, I, I think uh, largely arises with, the, with revivalism in the 19th century, so that special music is a way of bringing excitement into the service. And um, uh, when the choir in our church sings, they do a wonderful job, and I enjoy it thoroughly, and I don't walk out, and I enter into the moment... If I were king of the world, I wouldn't have choirs or solos in the service. I'd have uh, uh, choirs. I love choral music. I uh, sing at other times for the, uh, the gatherings of the people of God. Um, the most important thing, however, is that choirs should not uh, undermine the congregational singing of the church. Our first responsibility is for the congregation to sing, and I'll move rapidly on before I get in any more trouble. I hate people not to like me. Um, um, uh, th this, this is a uh, question that suggests maybe I was a little hard on some of those hymns like Trust and Obey and uh, might we not be too demanding of the words of post-biblical hymns does orthodoxy forbid poetic license and then some examples are offered no, obviously not we, we ought to be uh, charitable we ought as much as possible to uh, uh, think the best when we sing something and uh, um, there certainly is room for poetic license um, the psalmist had poetic license, and uh, so go ahead and sing those psalms. Don't feel uh, <laughs> any hesitancy about that. <laughs> it's always good to hear an Italian voice. Papam uh, habemus. We have a pope. Um, that's what they say when a new pope is elected. Is, uh, white smoke. is there any historical evidence that the church after the Reformation worshipped in a more participatory way as described in 1 Corinthians 14.26 not with tongues and revelatory gifts of course I don't know why of course but anyway um, there was a movement 
um, again, as a reaction to a perceived formalism in uh, the 19th century amongst German pietists to try to create small groups uh, where there would be some participation, but it was not seen as official worship. Um, also, in the Methodist uh, movement of the 18th century, there was a good deal of use made of small groups uh, where there was participation, but again, that was not seen as a formal worship. Um, so the basic answer to that question, I think, is pretty much no. It's a relatively recent... Um, the, the, uh, mention is made of the Plymouth Brethren. Well, that, that would bring to mind one exception, I suppose, would be the Quakers, where uh, Quaker meetings in the 17th century, they would wait for an inner light and someone to rise with the inner light of the Holy Spirit to speak uh, to the group. Um, so that would be somewhat uh, participatory. Uh, a related question... Uh, says, should we be having expressional services on Sunday evening? These include requests of song, insights from our quiet times with no preaching from the word. Uh, can we use instruments, applaud, or allow women to speak and or admonish? Should we do this on Wednesday evening and therefore it wouldn't be our focus corporate uh, Sunday worship? Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm not really terribly familiar with the phrase expressional services. Um, um, my conviction would be that uh, for the corporate worship of the people of God, um, that certainly central to that would be the preaching of the word as a means of grace, uh, the exercise of the offices of the church, and uh, I would be uh, more comfortable with informal gatherings of the church where uh, people could share insights, there could be free discussion, uh, and um, where uh, people could be choosing... Um, uh, hymns, uh, I would not be very happy with uh, the preaching of the word replaced by people just sharing insights. I think uh, sharing insights can have a place, but it's not, it seems to me, um, um, something that could replace the means of grace in the preaching of the word. In those informal gatherings, uh, can we applaud? Uh, sure, like with the kids today, uh, that's great. Um, but uh, I, I personally don't much care for applause in the public worship of God because in our culture, applause is a sign of appreciation for entertainment. And uh, I don't think uh, elements of the worship of God are entertainment. Should women be allowed to speak or admonish uh, only to their husbands um, who probably need it? Um, I, I think in, uh, my own feeling is that in informal gathering, uh, women may do what unordained men can do. Um, and uh, if, if they want to share an insight, I don't have any trouble with that. Uh, it is true that the General Assembly of 1832, in a pastoral letter of the churches, to the churches, said that women were not to speak in promiscuous gatherings. <laughs> so, um, which I took to mean uh, uh, gatherings where men and women were both present. Um, but, so there has been some difference of opinion over that. I think... Uh, uh, an expressional service, um, uh, if you want to use that expression, uh, uh, on a Wednesday night or um, uh, uh, some other time would be appropriate. I, I'm, I'm always intrigued when people say, well, we can't have it on Wednesday night or we can't have it on Friday night. No one would come. And then I have to ask, well, does anybody really want it then? And does it really fulfill any function if no one's willing to come? Um, but anyway, that, that's my reaction to that. Um, any cans of worm to open, I will leave to the ministers to close. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Um, you spoke regarding the Lord's Supper and worship. Here we meet God, that is, nourishment for the soul to the believer. When, if ever, should a confessing believer be barred from the table? What is the purpose or goal of such barring? In most of our Reformed churches, um, uh, people are barred from the table only for uh, uh, serious, um, unrepentant sins, uh, which uh, leads the church... Uh, to fear that they may not be uh, true Christians at all and are living in rebellion against God and therefore they are barred from the table as much as anything for their own good lest they eat and drink judgment to themselves and also uh, to express the seriousness of the church's warning uh, that they need to amend their lives and um, uh, certainly it is appropriate to bar people from the table who have uh, refused to heed uh, the admonition of the church to repent of, uh, of serious sin. Uh, do you believe that the bread and wine are the proper and natural body and blood of Christ as we partake of the elements in faith? No, I myself do not believe that the bread and the wine are the body of, of Christ. Um, I believe that we receive the true uh, body of, of, uh, and blood of Christ through the elements of the supper. And I think one of the ways of briefly summarizing the difference between uh, a Lutheran and a Reformed view of the sacrament is that the Lutherans tend to use the preposition in uh, as their central preposition. The body is in the bread and the wine. And they do that to stress the reality of the availability of Christ in the sacrament. Uh, the Reformed have uh, characteristically stressed the preposition through. We receive the body and blood through the bread and the wine. And I think that is a more helpful way to keep clear in our own minds that we don't confuse the sign of the sacrament with the reality of the sacrament. And... Um, it is not the bread and the wine that are the body and blood of Christ, but the bread and the wine are the, um, uh, the sacrament appointed uh, as the means by which we receive the bread and the wine. Uh, will you please exegete Romans 6 or the verses in Colossians based on your teaching on baptism? No. I, there's just not time to do that, and I'm really not prepared to do that in any uh, particularly effective way. <clears throat> well, I was mentioning to someone at the break, I've, I've always found Pierre Marcel's book on baptism generally a very helpful book. Um, and I assume Mr. Murray must get into uh, some of these questions in his book on baptism, John Murray. Um, did okay. Um, let me finish with these written questions, and if we have a minute, then we can take some. Um, you said that one of the problems with the Reformed worship is that it can become too textbooky. What can we do to prevent this, and what is the difference between Reformed teaching and Reformed preaching? And I would say those two questions are really uh, very much interconnected, that um, if the preaching um, slops over too much into becoming just teaching, then it tends to make the whole service uh, textbooky. And... Um, I would say that um, we have to remember that preaching is uh, not for entertainment, which seems to be the besetting sin of uh, many evangelicals, but it is also not primarily for information, which can become the besetting sin of the Reformed. Um, it is to impress upon the hearts of God's people the way in which truth calls us to faith and repentance. And, and therefore, I, I think we always have to, uh, when, when we're talking some aspect of truth, whether it's the exposition of a text of Scripture or focusing on a doctrine, to, to be talking about what difference this text or this truth makes 
for our being Christians, for our life of faith and repentance. And so we would not talk on the limited atonement, for example, just abstractly to provide information about a doctrine, uh, as valuable as that is and as important as as that has to be as an element of what is said. Um, uh, It seems to me it would not be good preaching just to talk about how the doctrine of, of of the limited atonement can be found in Scripture and is true, but to, to talk about how that impacts on our understanding of God and His character and what it means for us to be Christians. It means that the, the redemptive work of God is thoroughly planned at every point from beginning to end. He cares for you. He has thoroughly and fully provided for you. Christ hasn't offered just a vague atonement. He offered a, an atonement for you if you're His. You see, that's, that's some of the difference between just providing information that Christ died only for the elect and saying that, that impacts the way you understand yourself in relationship uh, to God. The, the people of God, it seems to me, in a sermon are always called to change somehow, to change the way in which they think and live and uh, uh, um, are, are oriented towards God. And as I tried to say, I think um, we, we need a liturgy uh, with, with a variety of elements in it. So I, I think we, it's very valuable to have in the liturgy uh, a time of confession or, or reflection on sin, whether that's through a prayer of confession or reading the law or a variety of things. Uh, some of the Reformed liturgies got... Um, well, I, I attended one Reformed church and I, I said it seemed like what we did was Psalm praise, Psalm scripture, Psalm sermon, Psalm home. Uh, There wasn't much flow to the service. There wasn't much liturgical sense to it. And and then it seems like the sermon does come to dominate and it can become kind of informational in character. Um, uh, Culminating the service in the sacrament, I think, is one way to to help um, uh, connect on a a different level than just an informational one. And that's why I I do believe in frequent communion. and I think um, the, the thoughtful choice of what we sing um, impacts that way too. I, I guess um, w- what strikes me, and maybe it's just because of my strange notions and prejudices, is somehow the Psalms do connect emotionally more with me than many hymns do. And uh, uh, th- that's what I find fascinating with the Psalms is the, uh, um, the emotional richness of them and appropriateness of them. You don't have to worry that they become too emotional. Uh, God got it right, and uh, um, it, they're very good that way. Uh, that's all the worship questions I have. Um, I, I got a second question. Can you outline some of the changes within the CRC that have led to its current state? I, I don't know if you, you all are really interested in that question or um, want me to address it or would rather have me take... Uh, let's have, the dean's not here. Let's have uh, Reverend Pontier make a judgment. Yeah, subscribe to the Outlook and then you uh, uh, can get that answer. I think a lot of Orthodox Presbyterians have been on the outside looking in. We've heard things and so on. You're on the inside. You can probably speak to that issue a little more authoritatively than uh, than other things that we hear and come by. If I can just quickly, you know, or briefly summarize the main points. Yeah, I suppose... um, I, I would point to three factors that are primary in my judgment. Um, um, I, I think um, there clearly have been theological changes 
uh, in the CRC, and that's been influenced uh, to some extent by the Netherlands and what's gone on there and the Chrefemerde Kerk and the churches in the Netherlands that we have been closest to historically. Um, and those changes basically are changes in a neo-orthodox and liberal direction. Uh, we, we keep uh, reinventing liberalism and wanting to give it a new name um, and uh, say that it's not what it is, but uh, it is what it is. And the, the heart and soul of it is um, a declining confidence in the authority and reliability of the scripture. And uh, I, I have said personally, for example, um, that I think the debate over whether women can be ministers or not is a very minor issue and that I wouldn't leave a church over that issue by itself. Uh, what troubles me about that issue is the way in which the scriptures are used in the debate and that those uh, um, uh, who have defended the ordination of women, in my judgment, have, have abused the scriptures in a way that leave us defenseless against error. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we immediately tolerate all errors, but we have adopted a, a use of the scripture which is, uh, is very problematic. So there, there are real theological problems that have come into the Christian Reformed Church and are coming at a, at a, at a phenomenal speed. Um, things that would that, that surprise even me, uh, pessimistic as I am uh, about the state of the decline of the church. I mean, there are, uh, there are voices now being raised uh, in the Christian Reformed Church uh, to say that uh, a belief in Jesus Christ as Savior is not necessary for salvation. A retired Christian reform minister wrote in the Grand Rapids Press that uh, how could anyone believe that the Jews who perished in the concentration camps uh, would not be saved, that they'd suffered enough, that they'd had their hell on earth. Uh, now, uh, this is, I think, a very small minority voice, but uh, no one leapt to discipline this man. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, this is really quite amazing. Uh, there are voices being raised um, uh, to say that... Uh, committed homosexual relationships should be tolerated. Um, again, a, a very small minority voice at this point, but again, no, uh, no uh, uh, swift uh, disciplinary action taken against such people. So there's a real theological decline. Um, but I think there are other things going on in, in the Christian Reformed Church um, because the change of a denomination often is influenced by factors that, uh, other than purely theological ones. Uh, the Christian Reformed Church is becoming Americanized. Um, in the old days, they used to say in the Christian Reformed Church, one could not do sound theology in English. It was an uh, inherently Arminian language. And uh, uh, only if you kept the Dutch language could you do sound Calvinistic theology. Um, I found out from my German Lutheran friends, they say the same thing in German. You, could, you can't keep Lutheranism in English. You can only keep it in German. But um, I, I do think um, there are lots of people in the Christian Reformed Church who don't want to stand out on the American religious scene as an ethnic confessional denomination. They want to be like other evangelicals. And so the, the, the opposition to confessional Reformed Church life in the Christian Reformed Church comes on the one hand from a kind of theological liberalism and from the other hand from a kind of what I've called evangelical activism. And these two forces have joined together to oppose confessional orthodoxy in the Christian Reformed Church. And they've put together this kind of unholy alliance and majority that is really changing the church. The other factor, I think, is um, the Christian Reformed Church has moved from being a blue-collar church to being a white-collar church. Uh, Christian Reformed people are much better off economically today than they were 40 years ago. And... Um, uh, I, I think that has made a difference in the way we look at the world, uh, the way we look at uh, 
our freedoms and freedom of expression and right to believe a variety of things. And uh, it, it leads subtly to the conclusion that uh, we really don't want to be called miserable sinners. We're pretty good guys, and look how well we've done. Uh, it's, a, it's a very subtle thing, but it, it cre- it, this is the Marxist analysis of what's gone wrong in the Christian Reformed Church, that economics has, uh, has wakened some of our discipline, some of our seriousness. Um, it is interesting that historically, um, Calvinism has flourished, particularly in the lower middle class. And as people have gotten uh, wealthier, uh, they've become Episcopalian. <laughs> You're treated better there. Um, so that's, that's a very brief, uh, brief outline. Uh, do we need to stop there? It's noon. Don't stay a minute past. <laughs> Good man. Good man. She did have one. She did raise her hand. That's true. Okay, we'll let you do it too. We'll, we'll grandfather her in. <laughs> you talked yesterday about uh, Calvin taught the kids uh, the Psalms, and that's how he introduced it. Was there any age that he or said or talked about where kids would make their profession of faith and then be able to take communion? <laughs> Well, you really want me to be left with no friends at all. Um, the question is, did Calvin say anything about what age uh, children ought to make profession of faith? And the answer is yes. Um, I, I have not looked it up, but I've been told, uh, so I can sort of slightly shift the blame. Um, I have been told that in his, uh, the fourth book of his Institutes, the chapter on Confirmation, he says that uh, if, parents, if children have not confessed their faith publicly by the age of 10, parents should be too embarrassed to appear in public. <laughs> now, uh, Calvin isn't a pope either. Um, but I, I do think that's interesting that um, Calvin felt that children under 10 could make a credible profession of faith. And... Um, uh, obviously, this is a difficult question for churches. In the Christian Reformed Church, the common age is 18. And uh, I think there are two reasons for that. Once, one ensures that children will complete all their catechism classes. Uh, of course, you could insist children go on to catechism even after they've made profession of faith. It, it is not written anywhere that you have to stop learning once you've made profession of faith. Um, and the other, the other reason, I think, is that uh, you wait till the worst years of puberty are over and uh, so you'll have less church discipline not either, I think, the best reason for uh, uh, waiting on a profession of faith. I I think the reform position needs to be that um, uh, children need to make profession of faith when they are ready to make profession of faith and that their readiness needs to be determined by their parents and their elders. And that we can't, I think, operate with a hard and fast age rule. The Bible doesn't give us any age rules. Uh, Some children at a relatively young age, seem to have a very uh, mature and sincere um, um, understanding of the faith that's reflected in their lives. And when parents and elders are agreed and the child is eager to make profession of faith, I think the child ought to. Um, uh, Where a child is hesitant or where 
uh, the parents are uncertain or where the life doesn't seem to measure up in the, in the minds of the elders, then it should be delayed. And, um, you know, it's always easier to live life with neat rules, but life isn't always neat, and, and we have to be willing to go through the struggle of, of figuring that out. But I think the children, one of the factors has to be the, children ha the child has to want to do it, and the elders have to have a confidence that they're not being just pushed by their parents to do it, but this is something that seems to come out of the heart of the child. Yeah. Somewhere in between those two things. Um, I, I think a credible profession of faith uh, involves um, an ability to articulate the basic elements of what our understanding of salvation is all about. Um, and so it's more than saying, I love Jesus. Uh, it's being able to know something about what Jesus has done for me and to be able to articulate that. I, that would be my opinion. But, but, no, I don't think Calvin would have in mind for a 10-year-old a... Um, a th there may have been a brief catechism they would have been expected to learn. Uh, I, I don't know that there was such a thing, but such a thing would be possible, I think. Uh, children under 10 can memorize much better than um, those who get older. Yes? That's true. I, I think what that quote, yeah. I think you're right. Um, what I, I, I share your, your reservations about that quotation. What I, what I find challenging in the quotation is that obviously Calvin does not see readiness for profession of faith as a profoundly mystical thing that everybody has to stand out and back and just wait to happen. Have, I, have you gotten zapped yet so that you're ready to make profession of faith? I think one of the problems I've seen in the Christian Reformed Church is a tendency on kids' part to say, I don't know whether I'm ready because I don't know that I've had any sort of experience that makes me ready. And, and I think part of what Calvin is saying is there ought to be an ordinary expectation that as children grow up and come to be taught in the doctrine that they will then uh, express their, their faith in Christ. And it shouldn't be looked at as something too mystical, uh, but should be seen as rather more ordinary and expected in the life of the church. And I think there is something valuable to that. But, but it shouldn't be used as a, as a club to beat parents over the head with. Yes? Are there some forms that you could recommend to us with your Christian Reformed background that families use to get ready for the Sabbath? I know that the Christian Reformed Church has a whole wealth of generations of history and, and doing things right. And you know, that's a great question, but I really don't know of any material specifically like that that we've Are used in the CRC. Are there practices like they always separate Saturday night out to get ready? Um. Well, I, I know there's a lady in, in our church about my age who said she can remember when she was a teenager, she wasn't allowed to go out on Saturday nights. She had to be at home getting ready for the Sabbath. Um, 
No, I, I'm sorry. Nothing's coming, coming to mind. Maybe we should stop there since nothing's coming to mind. That's always <laughs> a, a good place to stop. Thank you again for all of your kindness. I've enjoyed this week very much, and it's been a privilege to be here. Thank you.